Grab a seat, my friends. Thank you, worship team. Jen, welcome back from Hawaii. You look nice and tan and rested. Um, If you've got your Bible, go ahead and grab it. Turn to Ephesians chapter 3. When I selected this scripture for uh, the end of this series, I think most people probably didn't even know. Like, they were probably wondering why, if they read through it, as to why that would be have anything to do with being underwhelmed. I'll send you in a second. They're all anxious to go. Maybe I should make you say. Just kidding. Reed, you want to take them on back for class, especially since you have to be done by 11 because Heather's coming in there whether you're done or not. Thanks, junior high and high school. I will see you tonight at Trunk or Treat, ready to help kids trunk and or treat. Um, actually, also, before I go, before I go, before I start, before I get going and can't stop talking, I wanted to take a second. Some of you know Tim Stone. Tim, Tim is, I hate it anytime anybody moves away. I really do. Because it's like, I understand people leaving because they don't like me, but when they move away, it's like, they liked me, come on! Um, that's right. Tim has not only been in our church for the past three plus years, Tim has been my neighbor since I moved here. And um, because of his son Isaiah and my son Dylan, and they're about the same age and they play music together and they're friends, that's actually how I first got to know Tim. And uh, I knew Tim before he ever came to our church. And I've told you before, people are never my... I don't go meeting people so I can get them into our church. It's just to me, it's always like a happy bonus if it's somebody that like I know from the neighborhood. So I'd see Tim and we'd talk. And I remember inviting him to a couple of, a couple of different things we were doing just over the time and... And his son had started coming to youth group, and his son Isaiah came to me one night and said, I really wish my family would come to church, because I think it's so cool. I was like, wow, you're the only 13-year-old I've ever known who thought church was cool. Um, Can I quote you on that and use it on a flyer? Um, And I told him then, I said, you just got to pray that it'll move in their heart, like that they want to. And I was praying for their family as well. And then Tim came, and shortly after he came, their family just went through some devastating stuff. And, and Tim, I, I honestly thought that that would be it, that they'd just splinter and go. And instead, Tim drew closer to the church. And Tim has led our divorce care for the last three years and um, the last kind of three falls. And he's become an integral part of what we do here. Anytime I, if I need somebody to come early to set up tables or chairs or just to come and greet people, He's one of those guys I can always go, hey, Tim, are you available? And he's never, I don't think he's ever said, no, I can't be there for that. Um, He didn't always sign up, but if I asked, he never said no. And Tim, I'm going to miss you personally as a friend. Know that we're praying. Tim's moving back to Wisconsin. His uh, parents are aging, and he feels like it's time to go back and help them through some things. And um, his mom has to have surgery, which is the thing that's kind of, caused him to have to move now. He was going to try to wait a couple more years until his kids are out of high school, but his mom has to have surgery, and so he's leaving this week. But Tim, know that you will be missed. You are valued, and just personally, I love you deeply. So know that I'll miss you, man. So, yeah, let's clap for Tim. 
Okay, now we're back to our text, and now I've got to try to get through this. Ephesians chapter 3, and we're talking about being underwhelmed and not being overwhelmed by the worry and by the weight and by the stress and by the pain and by everything else in this world. And sometimes I look at the news and I just go, God, how are we supposed to do this? And I was with the, the letter bombs this week and the shooting yesterday, and I, you see these things, and it's just thing after thing after thing. And I was just trying to put it in perspective, knowing what I was going to talk about, but how am I not worried, a little worried, at least just to show up for church now? <laughs> and yet, I'm supposed to believe God's got this in control. And as I was praying through this week, Four days this week, I just walked around the sanctuary and prayed. I just walk for, one day I was in here 40 minutes, just, I walk in a big circle, because I, I can't, I have a hard time sitting and praying, I can't do it in my office, or there's that computer right there, and there's this email, and there's that phone call, so I have to get out of there, so I come in here, so I either, if it's nice, a lot of times I'll walk down by the marina, there's that trail there, and I've been known to walk the entire length and spend four miles, I call it, yeah, I spent four miles praying today. And I'm praying for the people in our church and I'm praying for the state of our community and our city. I'm just overwhelmed and I'm going, God, I'm in the middle of this series on don't worry. And then literally on Thursday, I was walking around, it was middle of the afternoon and it was probably like three in the afternoon, four in the afternoon and I'm just walking around and just thinking, God, what are you, what are you doing? What are you doing? And he's like, either you believe it or you don't. And at this point in your life, if you don't believe it, there's nothing I can say to reassure you. And that hit me hard. And so Friday, it it really did. It like, do I believe it or not? You know, I'm the pastor. I have to believe everything that it says in here. And so then I'm hit with this. And so Friday, I decide, I I met with a couple people in the morning and then I decided I was going to, um, I have lunch with my son and a few of the kids in the youth group, and um, he was like, oh, I'm, I'm not going to be there for 45 minutes, so I thought, oh, I know what I'll do, I'll walk. And I was already down in Kent to meet him, and so I start walking along the golf course. There's a trail that goes along there, and as I'm walking along with my headphones in, praying and saying, God, I, I want to believe, suddenly I got hit by something. Literally, it was a golf ball. It came over the fence, hit me right there. And, um, and I'm not saying God sent the golf ball, but let me tell you the rest of the story. So I got hit by this golf ball right in the shoulder. I have a, like a big bruise right here. And I took my headphones off, and there's a lady taking pictures. And she says, are you okay? And I said, yes, did you hear anyone yell? And she said, no. And she said, but there's a snake here. I was like, what? She's like, I don't know if it's poisonous, but I'm taking pictures. She had this thick, thick Russian accent. So I walk over and I look, it's a little garter snake. I said, it's not poisonous. She goes, oh, good. I was worried about the snake. I was like, then why are you standing by it if you're worried about it, taking pictures of it? And so I begin to talk with her. And we spend about five, six minutes talking. And somehow, as often does, the beauty of where we were came up and the beauty of nature. 
And God came up, and it was totally organic. I didn't say, and do you know Jesus? We just, we were talking about nature and the snake and me getting hit with a golf ball. And suddenly, the next thing I know, I feel like, wait, I was supposed to be out here just focusing on God, not a bunch of other junk. Get away from me, lady. But we start talking, and the conversation organically goes to God. And she says, I believe God is found in nature. And I said, I believe that God can have a relationship and be found in humans. And then she tells me what she, like what her background was. And we just, we had this five minute conversation. And then I went back on my walk and she went the other way. And God said, did you trust me in that moment? I was like, I, I, I said, God, I, to be honest, I didn't even think about it. I just naturally did. He goes, then live your life that way. Live your life in such a way that it's organic. And I, I didn't lead that woman to the Lord that day. I will probably more than likely never see her again unless she walks on the trail the same time I do. And I don't usually on Fridays at lunchtime, so there's a slim chance. And all these circumstances came together for us to have this moment of conversation and for God to say, now live your life that way. Live your life that way in such an organic way that you're not constantly obsessed with whether or not good or bad is happening in the world, but that you're continually being the light and the witness that you're called to be. So here's what the text says. We don't have time to read all of Ephesians 3. I wish I did because it would really help tie you in. But I'm going to start at verse 14. It says, For this reason I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. Again, reflecting back to what Amy said, named. The whole family in heaven and earth is named. In other words, God knows who you are. God knows who you are. That's all Paul is trying to say, but he says it much more poetic. That he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man. That Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height. In other words, you have the same understanding of all people throughout history in relationship to who Christ is. There's nothing that's not accessible to you. To know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, and above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, to him be the glory in the church, by Christ Jesus, to all generations, forever and ever. Here's what the text says. Paul starts with, I bow my knees. Paul is humbled by the fact that the grace of God is enough for a sinner like him, and you should be too. It doesn't matter what you've done. There are consequences to our actions in this world. There are results. If I speed and I go a little too fast and I go through the wrong spot, I get a ticket. It's the consequence of my actions in this world. But that doesn't mean that God's not there. And I shouldn't be humbled by him. And the beauty is, the next part about that, we are allowed to access Christ. Verse 12 of chapter 3 says this, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in him. We have access to the living God of the universe through Jesus Christ. 
And yet we're worried about things that oftentimes we have no control over. They obsess, we obsess on them. They control our thoughts, they control our minds, and we can do nothing about them. We ought to be humbled as we kneel before God. God strengthens us that Christ may dwell in us. This is the second thing the text tells us. God strengthens us that Christ may dwell in us for faith, for the love of others. God doesn't dwell in us so that we're superior to those dirty sinners across the street. God doesn't dwell in us so that I'm better than those people who go to that church that don't really even know that aren't really charismatic enough, that aren't Pentecostal enough, that aren't spirit-filled enough, or that are too much this or that or the other. He dwells in us so that our faith can be alive and so that I can love others. Because outside of Christ, I cannot do it. No matter how hard I try, no matter how much I want to, outside of Christ, I cannot love others. So we are able to experience the love of Christ And once I've experienced that, I'm never supposed to be the same. To experience any love at all is only because God allows us to. And in a world that's filled with anxiety and brokenness and depression, I'm not surprised that many people, even within the church, don't feel love. Because it's really hard to get through all of that other stuff. And you're not broken and you're not wrong if you go through those things. Those are real emotions and real feelings. And God is still there in our midst going, I love you. I love you. But how many times does he have to say it till it breaks through? When we understand God does this, he strengthens us so that we're able to experience love. To be filled with the fullness of God. Literally, it says the fullness that in verse 19. That fullness is this. It's, it's, it, the word is uh, pleroma. And that's the Greek, pleroma. And the picture it gives is this. Most Greek words, they're associated with a picture. And it's, the picture is this. It's a, it's a ship. And it's full of cargo and it's full of sailors. And it's so full that they couldn't get any more on this ship and keep it afloat. And it comes into a harbor, and the harbor is so full of ships that are so full of cargo and so full of people, it can't take any more. It literally doesn't fit. They want to cram it in because it's good stuff, but it can't fit. That's what the fullness of God is. It is so much in our life that we can't fit any more in because of who he is has so overwhelmingly filled us that that infilling, we don't have room for any more. Wouldn't you love to experience the fullness of God like that? And yet he says, that's available to you. That's available to you. Third thing the text tells us is, he does more than we can possibly fathom. People say, you couldn't imagine it. And I'm always like, yes, I could. I have a great imagination. Go ahead and tell me. You couldn't imagine how difficult it was. Oh, yes, I could. It's beyond our comprehension. It's beyond what we can mentally fathom. What he's doing for us that we don't even realize. And it doesn't say, but don't ask for more. If anything, throughout scripture it says, ask for more because that's what I have for you. Fourth thing the text tells us is, this should cause us 
to desire to glorify God. doesn't say it will make you glorify God. It says it should put within us a desire to glorify God. In the church, to the people, and to all generations. To all generations, I should want to glorify God because of everything he's already done in me and through me. How can I not want to glorify God? And yet so much of the time, we look at our circumstance and we look at our situation and we go, yeah, but I'm behind on the mortgage and the pet is sick and my kids drive me nuts and my brother is getting a divorce and my mom has cancer and all these things distract us. And he's looking and he's saying, you should still glorify God because you have no idea what he's already doing in you and through you. It's more than you can fathom. It's more than you can comprehend. And this should cause us to glorify God in all that we do, in all that we say, and in all that we are. So here's some things that I think the text, it doesn't say these, but I think people get these wrong over time. Um, It doesn't talk about what the riches of his glory specifically mean, and I've heard it preached that this is wealth. But if you really read it and you read it in the context, it's not about wealth, but it's about freedom and presence the presence of God, and the freedom from all the burdens of this world. I read an article, not long ago actually, about a guy who was a a self-made multimillionaire. He was one of the guys on Shark Tank. And he said, what having all this money does for him, the greatest thing that that money gives him is freedom and time. He's got freedom to do anything he wants, and he can buy all the time he needs, during this lifetime anyway, to go do those things. The money gives him freedom and time. And that's literally what it's saying here is the riches of his glory, that presence of God gives you freedom from the worry, freedom from the pain. It doesn't change the world you live in. You still live in this broken world, but you don't have to be the one who's going to fix it. You just have to know that he's with us in this, through this. And we've got all the time in eternity to spend getting to know God and better understanding this. And some of us have longer on this earth than others. We're all going to die and we're all going to meet Jesus at some point. But until that time, we do the most with our time here, but let's fill that time in the presence of God. Another thing that the text number says is that there's an end to love. It tells us specifically there is no limit. This is difficult for humans to believe. That's in verse 18 if you're taking notes. But that's difficult for humans to believe. We want to believe that God can love me because after all, I'm a pretty good person. But you don't know how bad this person is. How bad that person is. What they've done. Or maybe our view is just the opposite. There's no way God could love me. Jeff, you don't know what I've done. You don't know what I did 10 years ago. You don't know what I did two weeks ago. You don't know what I did last night. There's no way God could love me. And I'm here to tell you that's a lie. And it's a lie that you've believed and maybe believed for too long, but God loves you and he loves you unconditionally. And he's looking at you today and saying, yeah, you've made mistakes, but there is no limit to my love. People say, surely there's no hope for the person who does blank. There's no hope for this or for that person. And if you believe that the grace of God is limited, then you do not understand the nature of the grace of God. You do not understand the nature of God's love for humanity. He knew exactly from the very beginning what was going to happen, and yet he still chose to give humanity free will. The third thing the text doesn't 
say is that it's up to us to do something. Verse 20, he is able, he is more than able to do more than we can ask or think in us and through us because of the power of Christ. It says he is able to do more in you, more through you. And too oftentimes we think, well, I can't because I'm too old to do this now. I'm too whatever to do this. And yet he's looking and going, I can do more in you through the power of Christ than you could ever imagine, than you could fathom. It's not up to us to do something. It's up to us to respond to what he's wanting to do in us and through us. We need to be willing to be used. But once we're willing to be used, suddenly those things are going to come together. So how does all of this relate to us releasing of our worries? Number one, God is in control. From the beginning, God had a plan for redemption. That plan was Jesus. And if God has a plan, why is it so difficult to believe that he can care about us? God is in control, and we need to stop grasping on for control, which is what much of our worry is. It always goes back to square one. Man has free will, and we live in a broken world, but that doesn't mean God's not in control. Just because things didn't turn out how you wanted them to doesn't mean God is not in control. Number two, living without being overwhelmed, it is a lifestyle choice. It's not, there's, there's never challenges. There are and will continue to be challenges, challenges of your children, challenges to your faith, challenges to your life. But just because something comes against you does not mean God is defeated. We don't have to be fatalists. We don't have to be cynical and say, well, why even bother? The world's broken and bad things are going to happen, so why do I even care? God wants us to be light and hope to those around us who are already feeling that way. God wants us to be the love that people experience and discover. The Pharisees, and sadly the church, put all this pressure on people to be religious. At, the time, at that time it was the Pharisees saying, you've got to do this and this and this. You gotta, it doesn't matter if you followed Christ. You, if you're a man, you've got to go and be circumcised. It doesn't matter. You can't eat this. You can't drink that. You can't do this. And he's looking and he's saying, stop putting religion on people. Religion is a trap. Relationship with Jesus creates freedom. If you, if you wonder how this played out in the New Testament, Peter and Paul literally split over this issue. Peter believed that Gentiles could come into a relationship with Christ, but only if they followed the Jewish rituals after doing so. And Paul says, that's not the very thing that Christ teaches. Christ teaches Christ and Christ alone, which means not Christ and a bunch of rules to follow. And yet, we're supposed to be set apart, which means we have to live a righteous life. But that's not for me to tell you. That's for the Holy Spirit to move in you, illuminate, and you to follow. And it's the same thing I've said before. There's things I get to do that God may say, you can't do that. But there's things you get to do that I wouldn't do because God said, that's not the path I want for you. My daughter's a vegan. She doesn't eat meat except for hers is really dietary because she didn't like, you know, cut the car seats out of her car because they're made out of leather or anything like that. But her dietary life is vegan because she ties very much 
meat to human rights, and that's fine. That's her philosophy, and I love the fact that I've created an independent thinking daughter. And yet, I hunt, and she's never said, Dad, you shouldn't hunt. Because she also understands, you don't get to tell other people how to live. She's an adult. I raised her to be independent and independent thinking. And that's the closest I can do to say, God has raised us and created us to be independent thinking. And there's things that she doesn't do that she doesn't get to tell me not to do. And by the same token, I don't tell her, you have to eat meat. You have to drink milk. I just ask, are you taking care of yourself physically? God's not wanting you to follow some other person's religion point of view. What he wants is a relationship, but there are certain principles he's also put in place that say he's told believers to gather together. Gathering together is not about religion. Gathering together is about knowing God. So he looks and he says, it's not religion to say gather to people together. The very concept of our name, gathering place, comes out of Hebrews where it says, basically, it's good that the believers gather together. We have to choose to walk in freedom. Viktor Frankl, in his book, Man's Search for Meaning, it's one of my favorite books. It changed the way I thought about many things in life. And he talks about when they're in the concentration, the first half is them leading up to him being in a concentration camp, and then the second half of the book is on the psychology of what happens later. And he talks about the day that they're freed from the concentration camp, the Allied forces come in, The Germans basically literally drop their weapons and flee. The Allied forces whip the gates open, tell all the people in the concentration camp, you're free. They're they're there less than four hours as they go down the road to pursue the Germans, and no one will leave the camp with the gates wide open because they know it's a trap. They know it's an elaborate trap set up to destroy them. And the first people don't leave the camp until after the cover of darkness and they send out people that were willing to basically be sacrificial lambs to go out. They're starving. They're in these bug-infested houses. There's not enough beds, so they rotate who got to sleep on a mattress, and the mattresses are made out of straw. And yet, they can't grasp freedom. And the same thing is true. We were raised in this religious tradition, and then we came into this, maybe it was when you were two, or maybe it was when you were... 73, but you came into this knowledge and power and interaction with who God is, and you believe it, but you don't really believe he's going to free you from all those things. So we stay in this prison on our own. And once they finally returned and told everybody they were free, the next day, more people left. And the next day, more people left but every night they would still come back. Because even once you're free, sometimes you don't know where to go or what to do next. So, okay, so I'm free. So they leave the prison and then, okay, it's getting dark, I better get back. And they go back and put themselves back in the same huts and the same barracks and the same prison. There's over three weeks that this went on before the Allied forces basically are coming back across Germany and are basically saying, why are you guys still here? And they put them on trains and buses to go home. Go back to where they said they were from. 
And they had to be put on these vehicles and sent because they didn't understand what freedom was. And that's what, sadly, much of the church has done to people. We say we want people to be free in Christ, but then you're only free if you follow my six rules. You got to dress a certain way. You got to act a certain way. You got to give a certain amount. You got to do this. You got to do that. And that's why I'm always like, I'm always hesitant to say, hey, like even for tonight, come on out and be a part because I want you to be a part, but I don't want you to feel, oh, Jeff's not going to like me if I don't show up. I'm, to be honest, I'm going to be honest. I'm probably not going to notice whether or not you show up because there's going to be 200 kids there and I'm going to be playing with them and I'm going to have my bullhorn and I'm going to be, you know, telling them every kid, oh, I love your costume. What are you? (laughs) Oh, you're a donut. Okay, I thought you were a coconut, but that works. There's no hole in the middle. You know, no, I won't get into. There was a kid that was a donut hole two years ago that I thought was a coconut until he told me it was a donut hole. If you don't know that story, it was a great costume. He was a big brown ball. (laughs) Anyway, I don't want you to feel like you have to, but I want, you to, I want you to understand you're free and we want you and we want to include you. You know why? Because I want to tell our community, hey, we want you. There's a place for you. There's hope for you. There's a plan for you. We love you. And the only way to do that is to get out there and say, please come and join us. Please come in. Please be a part. So I'm telling you this, not because I want you to walk around with this ever, well, is he going to be mad if I don't show up? Is he going to... No, I'm not. I want you here because I want you to have an impact with God. And I believe that you help us as a congregation better understand who God is. So here are my questions that I'm asking. Am I willing to trust God so deeply that I walk free of worry? See, worry, at least that means I'm doing something right? Well, I'm worried. I'm worried about my kids. I'm worried about this. I'm worried about that. That worry, at least I'm doing something. I'm not saying don't take action. I'm saying release it to God. Worry is really an artificial way of us feeling like we're in control. And I'm saying we've got to give control over to God. And along with that means forgiveness. Because I think one of the reasons we hold on to these things is because if I, for, if, I, if I don't hold on to it, it means I forgive the person who hurt me. I forgive the people who damaged me. I give up control, and I would rather die than give up that control. The second thing that I'm asking myself is, if I'm free from the need to worry, when I learn to walk in Jesus and trust him. What do I do with that freedom? Do I walk right back in the prison every night? Right back in the very barracks that are bug infested and don't have enough mattresses? And there's not enough space for me and there's not enough this and there's not enough. Now maybe I'll go out occasionally during the day and I show up for church on Sundays. But do I really walk in the freedom that he's given me? Because I look and I go, God, I want to be a person who walks in your freedom. Not because I get to do whatever I want, but I'm going to limit myself on what that looks like because I want other people to see what your freedom looks like. Do I walk freely in that freedom that I've been given? Because I don't have to worry anymore. He's taking care of it. Do I live my life like that? That's the question. 
Father God, I thank you for the people of Gathering Place. God, I thank you for every person who's in here today. That we would see you, that we would know you, that we would love you, that we would serve you. But mostly, that we would give our lives over to you because you desire to fill us. Fill us so much that we can't fathom what you want to do in and through us. That we can't imagine what you still have for us. God, that we would walk in that freedom. And as we walk in that freedom, that we are no longer bound by, we are no longer trapped by the idea and the concept of religion. But because of that, we can clearly show others who Jesus is working innocent through us. God, I believe that you want to do things in us and through us that are greater than anything we could do on our own. Help that to be real. Help that to matter in your name. Amen. John, come on up. Do you have the mic? Okay. We're going to take about another 60 to 90 minutes to sit here and Think about having another cup of coffee, some snacks. No, seriously. James and Amy, Tracy, would you come forward, please? You know, it's a season of thankfulness. It's a season to uh, honor those that serve It also has been, if you didn't know this, October is Pastor Appreciation Month. Here we are at the end. Not too late to appreciate your pastors. So on behalf of all of you and the council, we would like to present you guys with just a small token of appreciation. This is for the McDonald's with the playground, so oh, you excellent. do have, you will be able to have some fun Good. along with eating. And they, this month they have little toys too, since it's Pastor Appreciation Month. But no, seriously, we, we are blessed to have these folks serving us, leading us, guiding us. And if you have a moment, send an email, phone call send a note, anything, to just tell them what you think and feel and how thankful you are. So I think they deserve a round of applause. Just so you know, for the last five years, they've wanted to do this, and every year I've gone, no, because I'm doing my job, and uh, I, if you know me at all, that's why I always say, hey, make sure you thank the worship team, but not right now, because it means nothing. No. <laughs> I do this because I love it, because I'll be called by God to do it, and um, I guess I just want you to know that I don't ever do it because I need you to pat me on the back. 
but thank you so much. I don't feel, I don't feel either worthy or deserving, and yet I feel loved, so thank you. And um, I never want somebody to feel obligated. That's the problem. But seriously, thank you guys. Um, thank you for the gift. It's greatly appreciated. And thank you for just your continual love and belief that this broken guy who genuinely loves Jesus could somehow lead you into a deeper love and relationship with him. So thanks so much, guys.